0: Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord arises upon you. Isaiah 61. So our mass opened with the Old Testament epiphany reading last night. Epiphany, a manifestation, a showing, the showing to the rest of the world of the Hebrews God in the form of a baby boy, Jesus. This prophecy by Isaiah was written more than 700 years before the birth of Christ. And this used to be a more important day for Christians than Christmas, or at least it was before Hallmark and Target came into power. Because when the three kings from the Orient traveled a great distance for a long time at huge personal expense, it meant that God was now saying, I'm here to save the world, not just the Hebrews, but those filthy Gentiles, too, as our visiting priests last night referred to them and most of us, because their habits and customs weren't those of the Jewish people. The kings were Gentiles, probably pagan astrologers and learned men. But they'd studied the night sky and knew a sign when they saw one. And they were determined to pay homage, which they did with frankincense, gold and myrrh. And then they took the news back east. The glory of God arises upon you. God is here, now, amongst us, not somewhere remote, watching and weeping, but in the here and now part of our lives. Isn't that good news? What a joyful way to start our salvation story. Stay in the light and encourage others to do the same. Good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler, and I'm your host, Vivian McNenny. Happy New Year and a blessed epiphany season, which stays with us until Lent and the preparation for Easter. And I have a cold. Apparently I sound a lot worse than I feel. I'm actually doing okay. And um, we had quite a holiday, as I'm sure you did, and it's probably all safely packed away up in the attic or a special closet for another day the stores are already luring us to spend our money for valentine's day and malia is still on holiday until the 18th and we've been busy but more about that later the weather here is seasonal hasn't snowed that yet though although we have had some texas specials of 85 degrees so shorts and t-shirts did make an appearance on white bodies every now and again during the holidays. My zookeeper's son worked all over Christmas and New Year because his weekend is on a Tuesday and Wednesday, and Christmas and New Year fell on Saturday and Sunday. How weird was that, by the way? The animals still need to be cleaned, watered, and fed. However, they did have a potluck Christmas dinner on Christmas Day, and I think there was a holiday aura over the enclosures and parks. I've told you that um, he has a second job on one of his weekend days, He drives a large wheelchair van with oxygen and a defibrillator for Lone Star Ambulance. He ferries people to and from their doctor's appointments or treatments and drives all over the Metroplex. He is a requested driver on Tuesdays, the only day he works at Presbyterian Hospital on Walnut Hill. The nurses there all rush to their station when word gets out that the zookeeper has arrived. He sees them whispering and pointing to him, and I say it's because his shirt's been buttoned incorrectly, but he knows better. The other morning, he came into my room to say goodbye and asked, am I handsome enough for the nurses? Big head, you think? I tell him his good looks and charm are totally lost on the okapi, but I think his fellow keepers and the presby nurses are stunned by his allure. On these early morning farewells, I joke that he should be a male model. Honestly, he'd make a fine sports representative and look most dashing on a magazine cover. Talking of which, he's sponsored by Evolve, a company who make climbing shoes and shirts. He's their spokesperson for young people whose only climbing experiences are indoors and how they're just as skilled if they can get outside and compete on outdoor rock faces as their peers from Colorado, Waco Tanks or Wyoming. He's been caught on film several times, strutting his stuff, and next month he may even make the cover of a Parks and Rec magazine. He may also work for a wall in a nearby town, but it's not a very challenging venue, but he can set routes and train their staff, which is good resume fodder. Consequently, he's hardly ever home with his job and his exploding social life. We did manage to see him over Christmas and the New Year, mainly because he was exhausted and partly because I mandated his attendance. We went to see the ice sculptures at the Gaylord Texan just after the festivities when the crowds weren't weren't so big. If you've ever been, it's amazing and extremely cold. This year, their theme was Charlie Brown, and we've put on these huge parkas to keep us warm. My blue-eyed cowboys was so big that every photo of him looked as though he was sticking his head in a cardboard cutout. We kept nice and warm, and the tour only takes about 20 minutes, which is plenty of time to take all the photos Malia and I need before turning to blocks of ice ourselves. All that talk of ice making me cold, I think I'll go to my book excerpt. This one is entitled Quality, Not Quantity, where I look at how the few friends I had while growing up let me down in their own special ways. My parents had very few friends within or outside the family. Their lives revolved around each other. When we first moved to London from Germany, we were thrown into the bosom of our extended family. Fortunate, really, otherwise we would have been completely homeless and living in the poorhouse, a fact lost on my parents. My brother and I were too young in Germany to notice whether my parents participated in any kind of social activity but since we lived in London for six years and miraculously grew older and more observant we couldn't ignore the subtle cold shoulder given to our non-immediate family by my parents. They seemed to embarrass my parents for some reason in spite of the fact that they'd opened their doors to us and offered us free lodging. In addition at the weekends they helped my parents renovate and prepare for habitation the little Georgian cottage purchased on our homecoming and in a At state of repair. My brother and I fell upon each other's company and watched as my parents thwarted attempts made by neighbours, parishioners and teachers to befriend us. Remarkably, we were never allowed to have anyone home for tea, although requests came regularly for Vincent and me to join other families in their homes. I don't quite know why my parents wouldn't open their doors. In later years, I suspected my mother was embarrassed by the size of our house and its location. To my young mind, our home was perfect, especially as it backed onto my school playing fields. The fact that a Peter Sellers song entitled Balham, Gateway to the South, soared into the top ten, plunging our South London borough into the public eye and causing my image-conscious parents further grief. They agonized over the instant recognition of the name Balham, and the attendant slurs upon its middle-class suburban character mentioned by Mr. Sellers in his good-humoured parody and rhyme. Our address was blacklisted and became a bane to be borne with much grinding and gnashing of teeth, until one of them... My father, I think, came up with a cunning device. Instead of saying we lived in Balham, we did some personal rezoning and attached ourselves onto the shirt tails of Clapham Park, an area a few yards down the road in the right direction and within the same postcode. With a few strokes of a pen, our address became more elegant and out of reach of Peter Sellers' witty little grasp. I actually remember utilizing this manipulation of address ploy myself when I was at boarding school. No teenager in her right mind would want to be seen to be attending a convent. So my school conveniently became Thornton College, named after its harmless little hamlet. My letters arrived unhindered, nevertheless. After several years, a celebrity from the BBC Radio 4 moved in next door, and our shabby suburb became fashionable overnight. She mentioned it on her radio program every week, and my parents positively glowed. Not that they had any friends, never mind knew anyone who listened to the BBC Radio 4 to glow in front of. They glowed in private for each other's benefit. The year after rubbing shoulders with a celebrity, we moved to Beirut, Lebanon, and I was eventually sent home to school in England. My first friend at boarding school accused me of stealing her watch one night and didn't talk to me for a whole term, turning many others in the small class of 17 against me. Her name was Penelope and I never resumed my friendship with her, although with such a small class and close living conditions, we couldn't help our paths crossing. In the weeks following the conflict, my life, which was already depressing because I suffered from acute homesickness, was brought to the level of tragic. My misery increased exponentially with each day I was there since I was so far away from home and I lost a lot of weight. Every moment was fraught with hostilities, real or imagined, because I simply couldn't pull myself out of my sadness. For the first few weeks, I knew my mother was still in England, and I couldn't understand why she didn't call me, sensing that I needed to hear a familiar voice to carry me through the torment inflicted by unfeeling peers. After half term, my adversary started talking civilly to me again, and almost immediately life in the convent veritably sparkled as the burden of rejection was lifted from me, and I experienced a great sense of relief. I was forbidden to call my parents, not that they would have encouraged any complaints I had about being away at school. However, they were in no danger of having to administer moral support or of having their illusions about the privilege of boarding school shattered. The nuns forbade phone calls because, as they said in true Marian language, it only magnifies the student's homesickness. Despite this rocky start to my new life away from the safety of my parents, I did manage to forge some friendships which changed with each new term. At the sweet age of 16, Emily, who had been my friend all during our O-levels, left school. We were allowed to at 16 to pursue a modeling career in America, a shared dream that I dared to approach my parents with. In the full spirit of nixing, my parents, who had nixed my dream of becoming a ballerina when I was 12, nixed any kind of career on the stage... And now nixed everything to do with fashion, modeling, glamour and vanity by forbidding me to leave school and seeking my fortune in the big, bad, wicked and incredibly attractive world of America note here all optimists and positive thinkers with a firm grip on one's dreams they are finally realized I did eventually make it to America under my own steam I was a wise 16 year old who looked on the bright side of life after futilely pondering the question that since my parents were so far away how could they possibly be affected by whether or not I stayed on at school for another couple of years I quelled my internal rebellion and made a new best friend for my A-level years Miranda unwittingly became the instrument of a betrayal that changed the course of my life. During our graduating year, we applied to the same colleges all over England and set off together on several consecutive weekends to interview with deans and directors. Once our A-level results were in the colleges we applied to, informed us of their decisions concerning our futures in their hallowed halls since i passed all my exams and my friend did not i was accepted at all the colleges miranda was only accepted at a college in london which was our fifth and final choice of course i was sticking with miranda as her faithful friend much to my parents dismay i declined all the other colleges to be with her for the next three years while we studied for our degrees satisfied we flew home to our parents i to beirut and she to durban south africa miranda's mother was ill And she discovered upon her arrival that she had a one-way ticket. Her father expected her to stay at home and nurse her mother. And I'm going on a short break, and I'll be back after a few messages.
1: How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNitty, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hey, moms, get ready for Living the Dream Mom with Nina Fry. Thursday mornings at 10, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Living the Dream Mom is about the true realities of motherhood, the beauty and the rewards of watching your children grow all
2: these moms have something
1: in common. They put their kids first. It's not about the kids all the time and the diapers and the bottles and the breastfeeding. It's about showcasing the mother in motherhood. Real moms in the real world. you get it? Now that's what the show's about.
2: So every week let's get together and we'll share these great stories with you guys and I hope by the end of the show you'll be saying, you know what? That is my life. Nina gets it and I can't hardly wait to see what she brings me
1: next week don't miss the next living a dream mom it's real moms in the real world thursday mornings at 10 9 a.m central living the dream mom with nina fry on Toginet.com. the way of the toddler with hosts lita and Lori hamilton is a show unlike any other parenting program you've ever heard zen masters in diapers yes Join us Tuesday afternoons at 5, 4 Central here on Toginet as we celebrate parenthood as a spiritual path for a journey to inner peace. With thought-provoking and spiritually compelling guests, each week Lita and Lori will explore how our children help us with the lessons we came here to learn, adding deeper meaning to our lives and relationships, while giving you valuable gems to add to your unique parenting toolkit. Check out the website, thewayofthetoddler.com. With great humor and honesty, Lita and Lori will demonstrate how inner peace is possible even when surrounded by poopy diapers and piles of laundry and what we can learn from the innate wisdom and natural spirituality of our Zen masters and diapers. It's The Way of the Toddler with Lita and Lori Hamilton, Tuesday afternoons at 5, 4 Central, here on Tokenet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginek. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny.
0: And to quickly finish my story, my best friend, who I um, refused all the other colleges to go to our fifth choice college, my best friend ended up not coming home. Her father made her stay and look after her mum. So I went to um, college all by myself. I was very disappointed. And um, it kind of stopped me from wanting to um, get close to people for a while. So uh, that was my negative experience with friendship. Anyway, my guest this week is Christy Jenkins, known as an ideas entrepreneur. Her first big hit was a unique book of photography of athletes and celebrities published by Putnam Books that sold over a million copies. She's created television shows, figure skating calendars, and shot the Olympics for Time magazine. She made a video for the general public called How to Talk to a Person Who Can't Hear. And Christy is joining me this afternoon to talk exclusively about her career and perhaps answer some questions you may have about careers of... Advice For your homeschooling children. Good
2: afternoon, Christy. Good afternoon, Vivian. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, except for a cold. But apart yeah. from that, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm getting over one myself. I apologize for my rough voice. Oh, well, no, you sound fine too.
0: Um, anyway, um, During this time, Christy, um, I want to, as I've already told you, help some homeschoolers plan for their future and choose a career that um, suits their individual personalities. And this afternoon, um, we're going to explore the question most young people have asked of themselves, why do I need a career or a job? But first off, um, why don't you um, describe briefly for us um, your education and um, when did you know what you wanted to be?
2: Okay, I have first a question for you. Is this the the kids who are being homeschooled who you would like me to speak more to or the parents of the kids?
0: Um, I would say the parents who are kind of trying to um, guide
2: their children a little bit. Yep. All right, so it's about the children. It's not about the mothers looking or parents, fathers looking for a new career for themselves.
0: No, 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 no. It's no. about children,
2: yes. For yes. the kiddos. Okay, yes. well, yes. I can answer that. When I was five years old, I had my first photograph published. Oh, okay. Um, this was something that I, I think in this lifetime I came in with a knowledge of how to photograph things, and I photographed a figure skater at Ice Capades, and it was – um. Uh, an action shot and I sent it into Skating Magazine and they published it and I was five years old. And so everyone said, oh, you ought to be a photographer. And I then took pictures of people as I grew up and um, kept having people want, want them or buy them from me at young ages. Oh, I love this portrait of myself. And they would say, what kind of camera do you use? And where do you have it developed? And I was using a an Instamatic camera, and I was going to a drive-through photo mat to have them developed. And I learned right away it wasn't about the equipment. It was about if you have an eye for something. And I do feel that kids reveal themselves uh, by having an affinity for something. And it may not be what the parent wants them to do, perhaps, but I Always encourage, if anyone shows an affinity for anything at any age, 5, 8, 12, encourage that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly what happened to me. And then when I went off to college, I was a theater major and various um, uh other students said, oh, would you take my headshots? And I slowly began to charge $30 per headshot, and soon within a year was up to $300 for a headshot session. Oh. So that was how my photography career began.
0: Oh, wonderful, wonderful. But while you were at college, so you said you were a theater major. Did oh, you what? actually take um, um, formal photography classes? No, never have taken one. I taught okay, them, so- but I've never taken one. All right. Um, What about, did you develop your own photographs or Mm -hmm. did you always send them
2: off? I I did do darkroom work. I loved doing darkroom work, Mm -hmm. working in a black and white darkroom. And I still do with, when, when, When I can get a job these days, which is very, very tough to be hired for as a photographer these days, despite my wonderful career that I used to have, uh, pretty much the way of the world is that people have digital cameras and they feel like they're a photographer, and so hiring is uh, pretty slim. But when I I do have a job, I do love to go to a darkroom for the black and white jobs and print myself. I do like Mm -hmm. that.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I don't today- use a digital
2: camera. I do not use digital one anyway. It's a, it's no. a curse word as far as I'm concerned.
0: <laughs> well, as today you really can't really um, believe some of the photographs that you see, not as much as you could when they were um, print yeah. photographs. So, yeah.
2: You can't believe them. And I, I'm, I'm very egotistical about my photography in terms of the fact that I, I can, with students when I teach, point to how many album covers and magazine covers I had that were just the shot. They had, they were, Photoshop didn't exist. There was no retouching. It was this was the shot. I composed it this way, and that yeah. went on the cover. Yeah. And I do yeah. think that kids should be taught that way today, but they're not. They're taught how to take 500 pictures and eliminate 480 of them. So it's That's a right. different
0: world. Um, going back to your book, you had a very successful book um, that sold over a million um, copies. How did that feel to have, to have that kind of success?
2: You know, that was great. I wish I'd had more people to share it with. Um, I had this idea. Was sitting. I was always someone who was aware of bodies because I was a figure skater, and so that was a normal thing for me to appreciate athleticism and muscle structure, and certainly men's bodies. And I was sitting with girlfriends in Hollywood at a restaurant outside, and a man walked by with tight pants on. This was in 1978. And we all turned and looked at him, but secretly. My other girlfriends were secretly looking where I was opening looking, and I said, that's it, I'm doing a book. And they were like, "Oh!" Ah! <laughs> uh, so I, I put together a presentation of this book called Buns. I was calling it Buns. And I, I called up a bunch of publishers in New York and said, I'm coming to New York, and they met with me. And I did have 11 publishing houses who wanted the book, but not one of them felt that it would sell over 15,000 copies. I said, I know what I want. I know my market It's going to sell a million copies. And they all laughed at me and thought, who's this blonde actress from Hollywood? Ha ha. And, um... You know, and the only person that wasn't surprised was me when um, it had been out a month, and my publisher called them. She said, It went into a second printing this morning. And she called later that afternoon and she said, It went into a third printing this afternoon. And still, not surprised on my end, but everyone else is floored. So if you really know what you're doing and you really believe in your product, I, I think, you know, it is not actually very satisfying to say, Told you so. It, it, it isn't. I mean, it, it's it's nice to it, that it um, it did do so well, and it was great that it was so popular, and that women were were saying yes, this is what we want to see. We want a role reversal in the sexes. We want to look at men the way they look at us. We want to have them see what it feels like, and we want to appreciate this. So it was it was all good, you know. It was all good. Well,
0: good, good. Um... Now, when a child goes off to college, if, if that's the route that they're going to take, how important do you think it is for them to know what they want to do by the time they get there?
2: I still think there's... <clears throat> I actually think that today's generations, meaning lots of sort of anyone under 30 today, it's what I have written about. I call it paralyzed by choice. Mm-hmm. The choices are so vast, and half the jobs today... You can't explain to your grandmother what you do. Mm-hmm. You, it, you know, it's some technical, techie, computery something, you can't even explain what it is that you do. Mm-hmm. But it's a job. So I don't, I think for a lot of the jobs that are out there, you don't even know that you want to do them. You don't even know you have an affinity for it because it's mm-hmm. not a a very defined job It's just sort of vaguely in the technical world. Perhaps you've shown an aptitude for computers at a young age, so you might go into the technical world, which is a huge banner. Um, So I really think that education is important because it opens up. You know, you try things. You go take a course you never thought about taking, and then you think, gee, I like working in a biology lab. This is kind of cool. And you Mm -hmm. find what really you respond to. Mm -hmm. So... um
0: if, if, you're, if you're kind of channeled or, or going the vocational way, like, I mean, if you know that you really want to be a doctor or like my son really wants to work with wild animals and he knew cool. that he had to go and get a degree in yeah. that topic, in or he doesn't want to do. I mean, he's not interested in looking through a microscope. He, because I said to him, why don't you write down what you don't want to do and then maybe you will find out what you do want to do. And really all he wants to do is go out in the wild and play with the animals out in the wild. And, job, um, but he yeah, today but he, there's a job doing that. <laughs> yes, that's right. But he knew that it was going to be tough, that he would have to do all of the science and have to do you know, the math and all of that stuff. But he was determined. And I said, look, it'll take you two years at a four-year school to get that done. Just go do it. And you'll never have to go back and do it again. <laughs> no, you're
2: right. Yeah. You're absolutely um, right. And, and no jobs are easy to come by these days. Unless you have created the most unbelievable app in the world, as they call it, and you might sell that to Bill Gates. But n- no job is easy to come by these days. You might as well make it up yourself. I've made up all my own work. <clears throat> Completely. Well, that's what it looks a like. I photographer, and then uh, I... Um, <clears throat> saw the movie Mr. Holland's Opus, and I had this spiritual epiphany, you've heard this story before, Vivian, watching it with this deaf actor, and I thought, my goodness, I was very moved by him, and I wrote him a letter and said I would like to meet him, and I didn't know why, and here's who I am and what I do, and so this deaf actor got in touch with me, and... We made a plan to meet, and I went out to a blockbuster to rent a sign language video and found that there were none available. No one had ever made one for the general public to learn to sign. And so on the spot, I said, that is ridiculous. That's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I decided to produce this video called How to Talk to a Person Who Can't Hear, which anyone listening who might be interested is now called Sign Language for Everyone colon how to talk to a person who can't hear it, the world's longest title for a dvd and um you know and i've been in business 16 years i really meant to be in business for two years i'll put the d i'll put the video out and we'll do a bunch of publicity and that'll be great and here i am 15, you know 15 16 years later still in business okay. so that was a, a tremendous surprise
0: and um have you uh... I mean, I know you build yourself as an ideas entrepreneur. And after the break, we will talk a little bit more about the ideas that you've had that people can look at on your on your website. And um, for those of you who are just joining us, I'm talking to Christy Jenkins, the ideas entrepreneur, and she's talking about her career and her views on education and career choices and how to get the most out of your life. And um, her sign language video that um, she's just been talking about is now a best-selling DVD by the title of Sign Language for Everyone, And you can go to her website at www.christijenkins.com to find out more about um, Christy. And um, Christy, when we come back, I would like to talk about some more of the ideas that you've had in your lifetime. And I, I also want to ask you, have you ever had a nine-to-five
2: job? Um, <laughs> when I was 16, I worked in my father's Department of Anesthesiology. Oh, right. So that was a, that was actually at 9 to 5 at 16.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going on a break. And so join us after this.
1: How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNitty, the sociable homeschooler. And we'll be right back after these. Get ready to laugh along with this little parent stayed home with Ali Loprit. Together, we are rebuilding a new economy that will support us rather than enslave us. Never again will we have to choose between raising our children and earning to provide for them. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it. For more on Allie and her success, check out her website, OurMilkMoney.com. So come get empowered with This Little Parent Stayed Home with Allie Lopri. Friday afternoons at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Cease and Me is on Toginet. A delightful, thoughtful, serious, and not-so-serious call-in show with Cecil Murphy and Twila Belk. Tuesday nights at 8, 7 central on toginet.com. You know Cease is the veteran author from 90 Minutes in Heaven, Gifted Hands, When a Man You Loved Was Abused, and many other books, as well as a mentor for writers. And Twyla Belk is an effervescent force known as the Gotta Tell Somebody gal. She's also a writer and motivational speaker who's always bragging on God. For more on Cecil Murphy, go to his website, Cecil Murphy that's P-H-E-Y, dot com. And for Twyla, GottaTellSomebody.com. The show, Cease Me, is a far-reaching, faith-based, shared conversation and call-in show with questions welcome, a chance to get everything out in the open, from questions about writing to surviving sexual abuse to the topics of the day, all from a Christian worldview to help you. Cease and Me, Cecil Murphy, Twyla Belk, Tuesday evenings at 8, 7 central on togynet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian Mcnenny, The show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian Mcnenny.
0: Well, hello, and I'm talking to um, Christy Jenkins. Christy, um, tell me about some of your ideas that
2: you've had. Well... We talked about the first one, the Buns book, inspired out of uh, Buns, A Woman Looks at Men's, inspired out of my own uh, interest. And then the the sign language DVD, inspired out of my own interest and frustration that I couldn't learn. Uh, Probably the most upsetting thing that has ever really happened in my career is I created the television show Dancing with the Stars. This is a widely acknowledged fact throughout Hollywood. Mm Mm-hmm. And I created it, and I took it to ABC in 1997, along with a partner, an Emmy-winning partner. And they decided they weren't interested, and we took it all over town, all the networks, and no one wanted it. No one believed there would ever be ballroom dancing on television. And it, was, it wasn't it was just a little idea on a, on a napkin. It was a 45-page presentation kit I had made, along with a, a demo reel, <clears throat> excuse me, a piece of tape showing it, and I had various people on my demo reel like Tom Bergeron, who is the host of the show and some dancers that were on the first show. Anyway, um, You know, suddenly one day I got a bunch of calls from from producers in Hollywood saying, hey, congratulations, I read that ABC is doing your show. And I'm like, what? And they were. They decided to do it. It, The statute of limitations had dropped out, and they did it without my participation whatsoever. And, of course, we immediately launched into a legal suit before the show even aired. And that was two years of... um, pride and frustration, and they kept getting off on a technicality. And even though people know it's my show, I'm not part of it. I don't work on it. I don't have an on-screen credit. Uh, Of course, there is no on-screen credit. They had to take Mm -hmm. it off, so no one's credited for it. So that has been really, you know, that was a huge idea that I knew was the right thing to do. And it's been a huge success, and yet I have not gotten to be part of it. That's been very difficult for me. So, uh,
0: yeah, that is disappointing that, um, you know, I mean, you you have an idea and you in good faith send it off to somebody and they turn it down. I did this this just was one of my really minor. I just sent off a story about an idea that I had and they came back and they said, one of our staff writers is already working on that. And I went, no way, because this was unique to our family. There is no way that anybody else would have been doing that.
2: And And that's really hard for, the you know, the The normal person is a wrong word to use, but you can't do anything except send it off. Of course, I was there working in Hollywood. I went into ABC with my partner. We were on the log books. We're Mm -hmm. we're there in in the legal document. They had to bring up the day that we entered our signatures. What are we there Mm -hmm. for? TV show called Dancing with the Stars. I mean, it's so documented. We have reams and reams of documents covered ourselves in every capacity. I registered it with the Writers Guild. I mean, I did. Ev- we did everything right. We were completely gobsmacked that we couldn't make the stick, that they were able to get out on a, a little squiggly little technicality. Mm-hmm. And it was just been so <laughs> damaging to me. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people there who know, and it's great, and they, I have that persona, but I certainly I'm not reaping any rewards from it no. um, right now. I live in Seattle, and I want to make a pilot presentation for a new TV show here. Mm-hmm. And I've I've gotten several celebrities who've agreed to appear for free, and I've written the script, and I've found the locations, and I've got a, you know, really want to do this. Uh, presentation of the show and take it to Hollywood to sell it. But I don't have the hundred thousand dollars to do it. Usually yeah. my projects I find a way to support myself. But in this time and the slimness of work in the last few years, I cannot. And I'm out there trying to find a hundred thousand dollars to create the next project that I know will be a hit show and I feel very confident that Hollywood will buy it. Seattle's a hot town, it's a good place to do it. But you know, you always read these stories about young filmmakers who make their film by mortgaging their parents' home and all of their relatives contributed credit cards and all of that, but I don't have any of those options available to me. So, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's, it's frustrating at this particular point to have a great big idea and not be able to do it myself.
0: And so um, I was going to ask you what advice you'd give to young people who want to go into the art world, you know, photography, film, TV or anything like that. Um, do you have an answer to that or are you, you know, I mean, obviously you're still gung-ho to get out there and still stay in the entertainment industry. But Well, there's just- always
2: these breakthroughs. I mean, look at the two guys that created Facebook. I mean, there's always breakthroughs. <laughs> they tend to be on the larger scale these days as opposed to a lot of little breakthroughs. But, yes, uh-huh. there are there are guys, men and women, who make a student film that Hollywood sees something new and fresh about it, and they get a chance to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, all the fields are so competitive today. We have so many bodies and minds out there to compete with. Everyone does for, for work, and we're competing against a lot of um, people from other countries who are smart yeah. and who have moved here. So... It is a real difficult time I think in our overpopulated world to to strike ahead. But the only way to do it, I feel, is through education. I totally believe in education. My heart sinks whenever I'm watching someone who's become well-known, who's on a TV show, and they say, yes, it's amazing that I've had this huge success because I dropped out of high school. It's like, oh, don't put that out there in society. It's it's terrible. Um, One reason I'm thrilled that so many uh, moms, homeschoolers, have ordered the sign language DVD for me is that when anyone of any age watches sign language and they put their hands up in front of their face and they're signing along on the screen It opens up a different part of the brain that shuts down as soon as we become verbal. This Mm -hmm. pre-verbal unit is open in our brain when we're born. It's why babies who can't speak can learn sign language, because that that channel is still open. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we become 100% verbal, it shuts down. So it opens up a part of the brain that we're not using. When we talk about, we only use a tiny bit of our brain. You know, we've got to open up the other parts. One way to open up the other parts is through sign language. So... I think that, and it shows people a different form of communication. I love it that kids want to learn it and they're so facile with it and, um, and, and multi generations can use it. So that, that is the, my only, honestly, only connection with the homeschooling community has been through my sign language DVD. Mm-hmm. I don't have children, and so I, my children are all the projects I create, and it takes all of my time and attention, just like raising children takes all your time and attention. Yeah.
0: Well, and even so, though, with your um, career um in initially in photography and now in um other fields that you're um venturing into um you I would say that um you decided that you loved photography and you were going to go after something that you loved and there are some people I think who maybe go after something because there's money involved um you know they they decide on what did
2: you say There is a lot of that.
0: Yeah. They decide what kind of lifestyle they want and they go, okay, so I've got to do this in order to 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 be a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I'm, you know, my son who, again, you know, the, the wildlife person is working in a zoo. Now, he could make more money driving an ambulance for Lone yeah. Star Ambulance Company. But and how he great that he loves
2: animals, and he went and got a <laughs> zoology degree, that's, and that's what he's doing. It's wonderful. And that's,
0: and that's what he loves. And I said to him, your budget is just going to have to match what you make and, you know, go with that. And, you know, he's happy to do that. He's a rock climber and outdoors person. So um, I, I'm listening to you. It sounds as though, you know, follow something that you really love. I can't imagine doing anything that I don't love, but there are people out there who have jobs that they don't. Um, you know
2: and- what? I sometimes am with uh, friends who have kids and their their kid is particularly enthusiastic over a particular thing. And I'm a person who says, why? Why do you like that? What What is exciting to you about that? And the parents are often like, hmm, that's an interesting question. I never thought to ask that of my child. And I'm like, you must ask that of your child because I know a man in Hollywood, who's in his 40s. And when he was a child, he was obsessed with going to Disneyland. It's all he ever wanted to do. And his mother was so frustrated. She's like, you just want to play. You just want to goof off. But he loved it on such a deep level. He is a person that creates rides. That is what he does now as his living. He creates audio animatronics, And fortunately, he got to go enough that he found a way to go to Disney College and get that career. But that's the thing that if I think if the mother had said, why do you love Disneyland so much what is it really that she might have discovered in him something else earlier and encouraged it
0: well it sounds as though he eventually found out what it was he did he was to able do. to <laughs> yeah. I, he might have just done it just to prove her <laughs> well yeah his probably still there. <laughs> well, he probably knew why and probably needed it to be drawn out of him so I think that's great advice ask your children why do they like what they're doing um I say this to um, my youngest daughter, as a dancer, and I say to her, "Why do you like to dance?" She said, "Because it just releases me." She said, "It's so freeing." It's something that she really, really loves to do, and so um, she is going to follow that. Um, so, um, your photography—you you say it's very, very difficult now to get a job um, in your first oh, love. It's, it's so it's hard top. to get a booking. It's so disappointing. And for so, me. I yes, it. I know. I was going to say, really Still, yeah, yeah um so do you um what do you do now to pay the rent
2: I do the most odd collection of jobs under the sun uh I i teach as much sign language as I can and I i, I, I push that um I am good at houses friends always comment on whatever house I live in what I've done to it even mm-hmm. though I'm a renter now I'm no longer a homeowner mm-hmm. so I put myself out there for redesigning people's houses or reorganizing them or making them flow differently. So that's one of the things I do. Uh, In college, I had learned how to be a professional packer for a big moving company. So I have a packing job next week. I mean, it's none of my sort of white collar skills that I spent my whole life developing, but I have to pay the bills and Mm -hmm. I do whatever it takes. And Mm -hmm. I'm really hoping to be able to put all those things aside and just do this TV show presentation which I'm just, it's all come together so wonderfully and quickly and yet I don't have the money for
1: it (laughs) Well, and that
2: that is a disconnect in society people who have great ideas but don't have the money, that is a huge disconnect someone asked me why do so many bad movies get made in Hollywood how do these really bad bad comedies or horror shows get funded and I'll tell you um I know this sounds like a stereotype, so I'm putting air quotes around it. But if you just say the Japanese Mm businessman, there are lots of consortiums of people from foreign countries who want to be part of Hollywood and they want to do something. And somehow if you find one of these groups of Japanese businessmen and say, I've got a script that's just like, and then you reference something that was popular. You say Happy Mm -hmm. Gilmore, which took place on a golf course. It's just like Happy Gilmore, except it takes place in a bowling alley. They go, oh, it's just like that. But it's in a bowling alley, we'll give you the money for it. They don't read the script. They don't have anything to do with it, but they put the money up. And that is how so many bad movies get made. Well, Christy, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you. Um,
0: thank you so much for talking to me this afternoon. And um, good
2: luck in your Good luck new to, to your dancer daughter and your zoology son. Well, thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye now.
1: How do you handle toddlers, teens and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNitty, the sociable homeschooler. And we'll be right back after these. Hello, everybody. This is Pete Dix asking if you'll join me on Beatles and Beyond on this radio
0: station. What a show I've got in store for you. Not only all the Apple reissues that I'll be looking at. Some very rare tracks indeed. A report on my evening watching and listening to... Neil Innes of the Ruttles and the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. So please join me, Pete Dix, with Beatles and
1: Beyond, on this radio station. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's the sociable homeschooler on Toggenback, and now back to your host Vivian McNenny. Well.
0: I'm back. I was talking to Christy Jenkins about her work as a photographer and her ideas, entrepreneurship. And she shared some of her career highlights with us. And so let us take a glimpse into her busy and creative life. Go to her website. Find out more about this amazing lady. Being a minority is no fun. Some of you may already know that. Usually, when the word comes up, it's closely linked with negative connotations. In America and the West, a minority used to be anyone who is not white or Christian. That's changed a bit. I remember when I was working for the civil service in England, manning, today it would be womaning, or better, humaning, the phones, taking personal information from callers who wish to be considered for the latest welfare offer. I would begin the process by asking, what is your Christian name? Meaning, of course, their first name. Even with the vast numbers of Indians and Pakistanis residing in England, we still refer to their names as Christian. And they would say to me, Raja or Mohammed, that's the arrogance of the British people for you. The Commonwealth is still alive and well, but it has changed somewhat. The countries remaining in it who haven't sought and been granted their independence are now referred to as Commonwealth realms. A Commonwealth realm is still presided over by the Queen and includes such countries as Australia, New Zealand and Canada who seem to love the royal family even more than we Brits do and there are some more recognisable countries and islands in the realm which include Jamaica, St. Kitts St. Lucia, Belize Grenada, the Bahamas Papua and New Guinea good vacation spots for the Queen and her family I'd say keep them in the realm well enough of the detour christian took us along and back to minorities as homeschoolers we do fall into the minority slot with only a few percent of us choosing to take full responsibility of our children's education sending all children to school is a relatively new occurrence the industrial revolution in england at the end of the 18th century saw a doubling in england's population and a growing movement towards mass education of the poor and working families Before this, though, wealthy and well-heeled families educated their own children at home. Homeschooling then was slightly different from what it is today, and after a little bit of research, because this discussion's primary concern is not the history of mass education, I found that most children who came from literate and well-to-do families spent their early childhood learning at home, either taught by their mums, their aunts, or their sisters, before a tutor or governess was engaged, when the older mostly the boys when older sorry mostly boys went on to university at early ages compared to today about 14 to finish off their education today's homeschoolers do the same kind of thing some bring in tutors they use co-ops they send their children at an early age to college to complete high school and college credits others teach their children for a season like senator edwards and his wife while he was on his presidential campaign and angelina jolie and brad pitt are homeschoolers intermittently as well as Will Smith John Travolta and Tom Cruise did you know that? I found a list of famous homeschoolers that for a moment will demonstrate what good company you are keeping. This is until your house explodes over a calculus or syllabilic problem that leaves you wondering ever so briefly whether this is the good road less traveled. Then God will shine his light and the glory of the Lord will rise upon you and remind you that you are not alone. Hearken well then to this list. Leonardo da Vinci. Claude Monet and Andrew Wyeth were artists who stayed at home. Irving Berlin, Anton Bruckner, Felix Mendelssohn, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Garth Brooks were composers and performers who were educated alternatively. Famous academics include Frederick Terman, William Samuel Johnson, Frank Van Diver, John Withers and you. Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, Douglas MacArthur, and George Patton were homeschoolers who went on to be generals. These select inventors stayed home to learn to read, write, and add Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, and the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, and listened to the president's. John Quincy Adams, William Henry Harrison, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, James Madison, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, John Tyler, George Washington, Woodrow Wilson, and and the list goes on. Well, their mums and dads were something else. And some of them even had public schools named after them. Then there were preachers and religious leaders from way back. There was Moses, Joan of Arc, John the Baptist, Jesus should be there too. Then William Carey, Jonathan Edwards, Dwight L. Moody, John Newton, John Owen, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, and Brigham Young. What about the scientists? George Washington Carver, Pierre Curie, Albert Einstein. Booker T. Washington, they all gathered around the home hearth of learning. Statesman, Conrad Adenauer, Winston Churchill, Benjamin Franklin, Patrick Henry, William Penn. They have their parents to thank for teaching them. And now to my favourites, the writers of this homeschooling world, Hans Christian Anderson, Pearl S. Buck, Agatha Christie, Charles Dickens, C.S. Lewis, Sean O'Casey, George Bernard Shaw, Mark Twain, Daniel Webster, Phyllis Wheatley. Finally, diverse others who have benefited from sitting at home around the kitchen table and learning at their own pace Abigail Williams Ansel Adams, a photographer, Clara Barton who started the Red Cross John Burroughs, a naturalist, Noel Coward playwright, John Paul Jones father of the American Navy Tamara McKinney, she was a World Cup skier, John Stuart Mill an economist, Florence Nightingale, Sally Ride Bill Rydell, George Rogers Will Smith, no sorry Will Rogers, a humorist Jim Ryan, a world runner Leo Tolstoy, Martha Washington, but last but not least, Jimmy Wales, who runs this famous homeschooling business, Wikipedia. See, we're in good company, even though we're minorities, we are the movers and shakers of the world, for God's sake. Well, I hope that cheered you up at the beginning of the year. This year, or rather it was last year, my husband, the Texan, lamented to me that he thought it would be the worst Christmas ever. Rather like, like that play we loved so much while the children were growing up called The Best Worst Christmas Pageant Ever. Eager to put into action my newfound positivist, positivistic state of mind, even in the face of the holidays, the end of the year, two birthdays looming, groan, groan. I counted his lament with, and what can we do about it? He was poleaxed or to be honest, typically male and not really into the fine tune planning of events, especially since historically in our household family events miraculously just fell quickly and seemingly effortlessly into place. This year none of the regular players were underfoot and he was sceptical that Christmas just wasn't going to happen. He wanted to go out of town call Santa and cancel, disappear pretend it was January 1st just not be around to watch the demise of a cherished family occasion In reality, nothing had changed really. I was still at the helm to make stuff happen. It's just that he was in the grip of the empty nest attitude and he didn't think we could get anyone back inside the nest but I knew better. All my planning over the years had not been in vain. The ones who had flown the coop still wanted to do their traditional activities. The baking, decorating, watching, shopping, shopping, Eating opening. It was just going to take more organization and more juggling. And this year we had a brand new and much welcome player. Nope, not a baby, a grandmama. My blue-eyed Texans mom joined us for the weekend. As I mentioned, we had workers on Christmas Day and two lived in their own apartments. So I fell to to arrange a seemingly effortless few days where everyone would be accommodated and reasonably satisfied with the festivities. Lots of changes which translated into lots of new traditions. No mournful looking back. We started Christmas Eve with my oldest son toddling off to Lindale to collect his grandmama, and we rushed around the house preparing for her arrival. We had little more than three hours. She dutifully arrived just as we flicked the last speck of dust from the tables and blow-dried the last strand of hair into place about 12 noon. No sooner had she arrived than she was plotting her escape. I remarked that she was just like her son, We leave the house to go somewhere, and he's planning our swift return. I suggested she enjoy her few days with us and make up her mind later. To her credit, she did this, and it even looked as though she may stay an additional day. But curiously, on Christmas night, while she was abed, she had a dream that said she had to go home, which she did later on Sunday afternoon. But back to Christmas Eve... We went to Mass at 5.30, where Paris and I served. Lots of incense, carols and candles, beautiful people and God. The little children placed Mary, Joseph, the shepherds and their sheep in the manger, and everyone was happy. At home, we did our Christmas photo ritual in front of the tree, a lovely event which has its moments of stress easily contained this year by the presence of the matriarch. Then we watched Christmas Eve on Sesame Street until the Chinese food arrived. After dinner and washing up we exchanged our family gifts which had been a lifelong dream of all our children now finally realised because of the emptiness of the nest and the workings of our son. This may be a new tradition and it may be tradition number one born along with Jesus our Lord we all dispersed to our respective beds, apartments and friends by 9.30pm day one over And out. On Christmas morning, it turned out that Malia didn't have to work, so we wandered over to Ian's house to test the waters of the second new tradition, stockings and breakfast, hosted by our oldest son at 10am. Paris came over and the event was good. Grandmama got to see the inside of his flat and admitted to never having lived in an apartment and never wanting to. Well, I'm looking at his $20 electric bill and thinking, This would not be too bad. But about 11.30, we took Grandma over to her other son's house, which is about 10 minutes away, and she spent the day under their roof enjoying whatever it is they do on Christmas Day. I know my sister-in-law cooked all the meat on offer at the grocery store and baked and steamed and whipped a meal for 16, worthy of the Iron Chef Award. While she was glowing, we went to see a film, New Tradition Number 3, in case you're counting. Both Ian and Paris came. Malia decided to indulge herself and take a nice long nap at home to store up energy for another round of gift exchanges. The King's speech was excellent and really a most satisfactory way to spend the afternoon. Then we rushed home to steam the puddings and heat the potatoes, the only food contribution asked for by my super chef sister-in-law i didn't even feel full after eating at her house there was so much food and only so much will fit on a side plate actually i'm very much a snack person give me cheese olives and pickles and i'm in epicurean heaven we'd each bought a gift and we did the chinese exchange which was fun except there wasn't much stealing everyone wanted to keep their gift good choices i'd say then off home we went with new tradition number four firmly behind us Ready for number five, we went over to our grand dog Buddy's house with turkey and beef for him and stayed for an hour and left with gifts and gift cards. They're such nerds, the parents, that is. They bribe people with gifts out of a huge stocking to stop in for Christmas. They do this every year, apparently, but this is the first year we've taken advantage of it. Buddy was thrilled to see us, or maybe it was just the food we were bearing. Anyway, it looks as though I have used up another hour. So I'll bid you farewell for this week and hopefully next week I will be cold less. I'm off to rehearse for our Boar's Heads Festival this weekend, a celebration of Twelfth Night with acting, singing and dancing at our church. So thanks to my handsome husband who believes in love at first sight, our four children who are the result of that belief, the hardworking staff at ToggyNet Radio. My guest, Christy Jenkins, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Hannah, Tina, and St. John's, who are actually going to be in town next weekend. Ali Lapret, host of This Little Parent's Day at Home, is coming up next on Togginet Radio, so don't go away. Have a great weekend, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you, and may the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Numbers 624 to 26. Doot, doot, doot.
1: Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toggin.